Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Radical Candor Podcast. I'm Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and co-founder of Radical Candor, the company. And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And I'm Amy Sandler, Radical Candor's Chief Marketing Officer and your host for the podcast, Radical Candor, How to Kick-Ass at Work Without Losing Your Humanity. So we thought it would be helpful to answer that age-old question, what exactly do bosses do? Kim, you're a boss, so tell us. I'm not the boss. Jason is the boss, for which I'm grateful because it allows me to be what I've always wanted to be, the writer. But I will answer your question. Bosses do not sit around answering emails and creating meetings, although a lot of people think that's what they do. Bosses do three things, three crucial things. They create a culture of feedback, number one. Number two, they build a cohesive team so that together the team can, three, achieve results. In other words, bosses get, give, and encourage feedback between team members to get shit done. That feels true. I think when I'm at my best, I'm doing those three things. Um, And, you know, when I'm not, I feel like I have you all to back me up. Jason, as you look at those three things that Kim's talking about, culture of feedback, cohesive team, achieve results, I'm almost imagining different levers, and at some points you might have to put more emphasis on one of those than others. And I'm just wondering, especially in the past few months as we've been navigating the pandemic, like how do you sort of weight those those three pieces? I look at them as sort of a virtuous loop as opposed to things that can be can be weighted separately it's not they're not serial even though we listed them one two and three from my perspective getting things done in this moment is something that helps us feel closer together as a team like actually getting work done makes us feel better uh, about things and i think when things are going well making sure that we take time to recognize what's going well and when things need to be changed, having the conversations about the things that need to be changed also help us get closer together as a team and help us do the right thing as opposed to continuing to do the wrong thing. So in my mind, like this idea of them being separate activities is useful, but I I don't think of them as like something that gets serialized over time. I think it was something that we're constantly doing uh, and they sort of act like the three branches of government to some degree. It, they create a, a set of checks and balances against each other. Because if we're not getting things done, we should definitely be talking about that, right? Like, if it doesn't feel like we're <laughs> getting our point? work done, like, that's where the culture of feedback really kicks in. And it feels like we're struggling to get our work done because we feel disconnected from each other. Like, we should take some time to pay attention to that and focus on our ability to feel cohesed. Is that a word? Co- cohesive. 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 <laughs> Cohesive. I'm the writer. cohesive as a team. <laughs> Thank God we've got a writer. That's, this is why we have a writer. I That's think, right. you know, in my evolution as, as a manager, when I first started out as a manager, I thought the whole job was about getting shit done. And I thought the feedback stuff and the building a cohesive team stuff were kind of like nice to have extracurricular activities. But in fact, these are integral, as Jason said, to the job. You can't separate these three things out. You can't possibly get things done if you don't have a culture of feedback and if you don't have a cohesive team. You know, Kim, you've been sharing, I feel like I just heard you talking about, you know, needing candor, compassion, and action, uh, especially now. And it's interesting because we think about achieving results 
there was this moment when everything first kind of hit the fan and everything paused and we really weren't able to achieve results in, in some respects. And so do you feel like that, how does that, that inability to achieve results or get stuff done, where do you see the toll on, on the other pieces? Jason mentioned about the importance of feedback then, but I'm just curious, what did you notice when we weren't able to get stuff done? Well, I think one of the scary things about a moment of change. So when you say when we weren't able to get stuff done, you mean right after we went into lockdown and like 100% of our business was talks and workshops at conferences, all of which were canceled, right? Correct. That's kind of the context. And so that was kind of a scary moment, like 100% of your revenue disappears overnight. That's like, that's a big drink of water. And I think at first, none of us knew quite what to do about it. And the instinct was to do nothing. Um, there's there People talk a lot about flight or fight, but my instinct when I'm scared is usually just to freeze. And the problem with freezing is that then I feel like I have a loss of agency and that feels bad. And I don't know what to say and I don't know how to relate to people. So s- somehow our ability to sort of break through that and just start doing stuff was, was helpful, even if it even sometimes if they weren't exactly the right things to do or say, we were at least moving forward. There's a great benefit of momentum. And my great-grandmother, in fact, had four daughters, and she needle-pointed a pillow for each of them that said, say something, you can always take it back. (laughs) And to me, those are kind of words to live by. You want to just start doing something, and you can adjust. But that moment of paralysis, of, of feeling frozen, is, for me at least, a really bad and scary moment. Yeah. So what we actually did in that moment was we started to have some open discussions, right? We scheduled events at no charge to have conversations about like what was happening and how people were reacting in part to help us understand what was going on, but also to your point to sort of loosen up the like, we don't know what to do in this moment. And so we shifted into a mode where we really focused on being in service. I remember concretely a conversation where we said, like we have to figure out how we can be of help in this moment. And I I think it was really beneficial to do something that we hadn't literally had never done before, which is like set up a couple of these live zoom sessions where we encourage people to come join a conversation that we were having internally. And we wanted to share with, uh, with the people who cared about radical candor And what I loved about those conversations is they did two things. One, it helped us think out loud a little bit about what it is that we were doing and how we were reacting. And two, it allowed us to give the people who care about radical candor the ability to give us a great gift, which was to share how they were thinking about this moment. Not only was it helpful and sort of clarifying our thinking, but it was very motivating to see like there was a way that we could be of help and we needed to focus on finding ways to do that, even if it was entirely different than what we've done before. It's such a great point, Jason. And I was struck as you were talking around, when we think about create a culture of feedback, you know, we're so grateful for the community of people that really believe in radical candor and how they're bringing that to them themselves and their organizations. And so really feeling like we can be of service to the individuals, but also creating a community of people with of shared purpose. And so I think really extending the culture of feedback, not just for us as a team, but for people that are practicing this was a real gift. So really thank you for 
for the folks that participated in that and, and will continue to participate. I know Kim often will talk about feedback as kind of this atomic building block of management. So just want to amplify that, Kim, that you are a recovered. Uh, these are soft skills, and it's not really part of getting stuff done, but in fact, it's the, the critical. Yeah, these are um, really hard things to do. And in fact, if you do them right, you'll make more money. So exactly. Not that that's um, the only reason to do it, but it's worth <laughs> noting. Worth noting. So when we think about being a boss and feedback, cohesive team and achieving results, one of those kind of atomic building blocks is actually these one-to-one meetings, right? And so I'd love to hear, first of all, what exactly is a one-to-one meeting? What is the point of these meetings? Yeah, what is the point of a one-on-one meeting? It's kind of the do-re-mi of management. Uh, It's really, it's it's a very good place to start. Uh, and so a one-on-one meeting is just a, a, conver- a private conversation that you have with each of your direct reports on a regular basis. In an ideal world, the one-on-one meeting, you have, I always had a rule of five. When I worked at Google, there was a rule of seven, which said that no manager should have fewer than seven direct reports, but I violated that rule. I had a rule of five, and I never had more than five direct reports because I wanted to have lunch with each direct report once a week, and I didn't want to have more than five lunches a week. (laughs) So I think that the point of a one-on-one is really to listen. That's the main point of the one-on-one, is to get to know each of your direct reports better and to listen to them. Sort of another point of the one-on-one is to give you an opportunity to solicit feedback from your direct reports each week. Hopefully you're doing it in the moment too, but to sort of create an expectation that you want people to give you routine, regular feedback, to give it to you. Uh, Don't use your one-on-one as the moment to give feedback. We'll talk, we've talked about that before. We'll talk about it later. That feedback is better delivered in these impromptu two-minute conversations, but it's a great time to solicit. So if we're trying to solicit feedback, and I assume specifically in the one-on-one with your direct report, it's solicit criticism. Is that right? Yes. As a manager, your job is not really to go fishing for compliments. You're going to get too many of those anyway. (laughs) Sort of flattery is this dangerous fog that's going to roll in at you as a manager. So you're, yes, you're really fishing for criticism, not praise. So let's talk a little bit about this go-to question. Then we can talk about kind of what else is happening in the one-on-one. What is a good way to solicit criticism from a direct report? Is there a certain time in the meeting to do it? Certain questions you like? Jason, I know we talk a lot about go-to questions. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. One thing to keep in mind, like all the advice that we give in the next couple of minutes about this, the most important quality of a good go-to question is the one that gets you feedback. Like, yes, it doesn't matter what the question is. the one is. that works. Yes. Um, so there, <laughs> How's that for helpful advice? <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because often what will happen as we have this conversation in workshops is people will get very focused on like, there's a formula, there's a right way to do it. And they'll feel discouraged because they tick the boxes. Things we say that about good go-to questions, they're authentic. This advice of solicit feedback um, is something that is not new. It's not something that came invented. And there are actually lots of conferences and, and trainings where people would come back and they would be tra- like, they would start saying, well, do you have any feedback for me? And 
it sort of seems like you're just ticking the box. That sounds like a phrase that you heard in a workshop and you feel compelled to, to ask it. And so this question of like, how do I say this in, in my own voice is, is one that comes up. And another one is, is it clear what it is that you're asking for? So to Kim's point, like there's a difference between asking for, for criticism versus asking for praise, but it can help to be very clear that we actually are asking for developmental feedback of some kind. So as an example of that, maybe we had a meeting recently and I've been working on, you know, my ability to manage airtime and I might actually ask, you know, Hey, been working really hard on, on helping you manage airtime in these meetings. How did I do in that session? Is there something, what could I have done better to make it so that the airtime is more equal between all the participants? It feels to me like that is a very clear question where I'm saying I am open, like this is something I'm working on. I'm open to the possibility I should be doing it better. And and you're sort of asking, you're asking for help, which sounds very different from, you know, could you please punch me in the nose? Uh, <laughs> so I think that one of the questions that I have liked to use often, which was recommended to me by Fred Kaufman, who is my coach at Google and who's a wonderful, wonderful coach and wrote a wonderful book called Conscious Business. He suggested using the question, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? And for a lot of people who I've worked with, that was a very effective question. I got a lot of great feedback, but Jason, you told me that you hated that question <laughs> or you said it maybe more nicely, but, <laughs> but for you, for you, it wasn't effective. Uh, yeah. Because it was too open-ended. So so unlike the example you just gave where you said, I'm working on managing airtime, what could I have done better? And by the way, the way you formulated that was really important. What could I have done better is very different from saying, could I have done anything better? Because what could I have done better kind of put someone on the hook for giving you an answer. Whereas could I have done anything better invites the answer, oh no, you're perfect. Yeah. Uh, so, so you want to really put people on the hook instead of giving them an out. Yes. Technically, that's the difference between an open and closed question. So if you've heard the, that terminology before, that, that's the difference. A closed question can be responded to with a yes or no answer, and an open question usually requires the, the receiver to formulate a response, to feel like they've done their work. Because I think that's the big risk here is that if you don't seem like you're into it, like if you don't seem like you're actually engaged and interested in the response and you make give people a really easy out, you're going to wind up in the fog that Kim was describing earlier, which is most of what you'll get is sort of like these non-committal, vague responses. And usually they will tend towards praise. And so the whole idea of like crafting a question and being really mindful about asking it and like more than once, right? This is not just like a one and done. I've asked you once and is really important. And the reason I, I want to go back to what I said earlier, which is, which is that the reason why I, I think it's really important to focus on treating these as an experiment and iterating until you find something that works is something that I'll see in workshops or that I'll hear from people who have participated is, hey, I asked the go-to question and I didn't get an answer. And they'll feel like they've done something wrong and it's like, well, no, like you don't know exactly how to get the information that you need. This is this is a conversation. You're trying to find the right way. And Kim's question work, works beautifully for, for many people. It wasn't great for me. And so you might not have just one go-to question, right? You might have a way that you approach this conversation with each of your direct reports. This is really interesting, Jason. If you're the direct report, the question the boss has for you is not one that resonates with you. What is the responsibility of the direct report? Like, what, what do you recommend they say when... The question just isn't isn't a helpful one for you. I mean, I think it's fine to say I'm not sure how to answer that. 
for example, I would say like, are you talking about all time? Are you talking about like recently? Like, like that would be helpful to me just to like sort of locate me in time. Is there anything specific you'd be looking for feedback on? Because I think one of the things that I've learned is it takes work to formulate criticism that is like clear and, and helpful. And so what I'm aware of and what I would encourage other people to be aware of is like, if the response that you get to your go-to question is sort of a deer in the headlights type of response, <laughs> uh, then you might want to go meta and say like, that question may not be great. My goal is to get development, helpful developmental feedback, something I could ask that would be easier for you to answer. And I've actually heard from... Uh, some of the companies that I've done work with for several years that that was really eye-opening. Like some of the responses that they got to, to that question was were very interesting and not not necessarily the same across their, their different team members. I think it's really important. I hear this a lot in workshops where people feel like, well, I just don't think I can just come right out and ask that question just randomly and just start asking this question. And I the idea of almost like I need an on-ramp into the go-to question. So are you saying that it might be helpful for some people to say, hey, I'm working on my own development, and so I'm going to start asking you a question to start to help me Im improve? Like, do you think even kind of teeing it up in some way for people would be helpful? I want to make sure that we're very clear this is not dogma. This, this is very much guidance. And the reason I think that's important is you might ask Kim's question and get great responses. And like, you're in good shape. Uh, I think what we're talking about is when you're not getting great responses, that's the opportunity to like dig a little bit deeper and try to figure it out. I really liked what Kim said earlier about asking for help versus asking for criticism, like in, in scare quotes, mm -hmm. this idea, well, it shows humility, number number one, which I, which I think is helpful because one of the things that I've experienced as the person who is being asked for feedback is like, I don't want to bruise this person's ego, right? Like, I, I, I'm not here to like hurt them. And so by them saying like, I'm, I'm aware that I could change, like there are things that I could do better. And I love your help in figuring out what those are, like that helps put me at ease. And so that's one way to build an on-ramp. And another way to build an on-ramp might be to like introduce the idea. I never, I feel like too often managers hold their cards too close to their vest, like they make the effort to like think deeply about their own development. And then they don't tell people that they're going to like change their behavior in order to actually improve the rate at which they are growing and developing. And then people are surprised and you much more likely to get that deer in the headlights response. So like sharing broadly, this is important to me. I plan on doing it. I think is a great way um, before you start in one-on-ones asking the question. But I, I want to go back to the question you asked, Amy, because it's a really important one. Is it the employee's obligation to answer this question from their manager? Are employees obligated to give their managers feedback? And I would say it is first and foremost the manager's obligation to create an environment in which it is safe to give the manager feedback because I want to acknowledge that this is scary. And, and I think when you are the manager, it's really important that you remember that even though you may not think of yourself as an intimidating person, uh, your position may be intimidating to your direct report. One of the core jobs of a manager actually is to lay down the positional power they have so that they can get on a level playing field and have a real conversation. But I think an awful lot of people have had bad experiences with bosses in the past. And I think that if you treat the next boss you have like the last terrible boss you had, 
then you're not going to get the best behavior out of your boss. So we want to begin to take small risks as employees to give our, our bosses the chance to do the right thing and to earn our trust. So, so I, I don't want to pretend like there's no risk in giving your boss criticism. There's risk always in giving anybody criticism. But there's usually less risk than we think there is. We're usually less vulnerable than we feel. And so I want to encourage people to explore that. Such an important point. And I just want to amplify, we talk about the order of operations and radical candor. And the first step is to always solicit feedback to get it before you give it. And so, as you say, Kim, to really lay down the power, the neuroscience part of this that resonates with me is David Rock's SCARF model, which focuses on a variety of different kind of threats and rewards and how our brain works, and the S is for status. And so just the very act that you're the boss is going to trigger a threat response. And so we really have to, as you say, lay down the power. So just to amplify that we do have this kind of order of operations, start by getting it before you give it. So on to our radical candor checklist. These are concrete tips you can put into practice at work and at home and when you're working at home. As a boss, you need to show up and be fully present for these conversations, not just physically or virtually present, but actually listen to what uh, the people you're meeting with are saying. Use your one-on-ones to solicit criticism from your direct reports. Practice your go-to question and reward the candor. If you are only getting good news or you're not getting any criticism, these are some warning signs. For more tips, you can check out the show notes at radicalcandor.com slash podcast. And finally, a word from our sponsor, Kim Scott. This is an ad for The Feedback Loop. Improvising Radical Candor introduces The Feedback Loop. Think Groundhog Day meets The Office. A five-episode workplace comedy starring David Allen Greer that brings to life Radical Candor's simple framework for navigating candid conversations. You'll get an hour of hilarious content. And remember, we learn when we laugh about a team whose feedback fails are costing them business. Improv-inspired exercises to teach everyone the skills they need to work better together. And after-episode action plans you can put into practice immediately. I just got some feedback from one of the people who took the class, and he said it should really be priced at twice what it is. But we're not going to double the price. Instead, we're offering you 10% off the self-paced e-course. Go to RadicalCandor.com slash services and enter the promo code FEEDBACK at checkout. That's RadicalCandor.com slash services, promo code FEEDBACK. See you next time. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.